Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 55, Eternal Fire. This episode contains part two of my second interview with Edward Fudge, this time on Annihilationism and his book, The Fire That Consumes. We talked about what led him to write his book originally. We talked about the traditional Christian view of hell, which presents it as eternal conscious torment, uh, in contrast with his view, in which the wicked dead rise from the graves at the final judgment and are thrown into a consuming fire that eventually utterly consumes them, utterly destroys them forever. Um, We talked about the kind of responses that he's received, uh, some of which were very negative and others which were uh, positive, even even by theologians who don't agree with him. Um, Many of them recognize that that this brand of annihilationism is orthodox, even if it's uh, even if it's wrong. We talked about uh, a number of chapters in his book, the Protestant principle of going to the Bible instead of um, instead of uh, trying to simply uphold tradition. We talked about uh, the immortality of the human soul and how that originally uh, seems to have um, been the foundation for the what is now the traditional view of hell. We talked about whether or not uh, monism or, or physicalism is something that's required in order to be a conditionalist, and he affirmed that that is not required to be one. Uh, we talked about the early church fathers, and we talked about universalism, and we talked, and finally, uh, I allowed Edward Fudge to give us a positive case in which, I, as I said, uh, he sort of caused us to drink from a fire hose of <laughs> biblical data. It was at this point that uh, we shifted gears, and in this second half of the interview, I throw about every, just about every single challenge that I've been able to find or muster uh, against his view, um, and uh, here you'll get to hear his answers to those objections. So, uh, without further ado, let's move into the interview. So, well, so with that, let's move into these objections that I've gathered. Um, and, and actually, the first one is one I didn't send you because I, it just dawned on me during the course of this, this interview. It, it just dawned on me... If annihilationism is true, okay, in the, in the, whether you're a dualist and you believe in the intermediate state, not you, but whether one is a dualist or whether one is a monist, uh, why is it that the person is raised from the ground and, in, in, you know, a recon, their body is reconstituted only to then be killed again? Well, I'm just curious, how do you reconcile that or do you think there's even a need to reconcile it? Well, uh, probably there's no need to, but let me ask you a question, answer your question with another question. Why is it when a mass murderer uh, who's firing indiscriminately at a crowd of innocent people is taken down but not killed and is captured, uh, is, is to be tried for first-degree murder in the cases of all these individuals he's killed? Uh, why is it that when he becomes sick, the, the state or the federal government sends him to the hospital spends whatever exorbitant sums of money are necessary to keep him alive, 
and uh, and then and then to, to, for, for, for the sole purpose of bringing the rascal to trial, where he's certainly going to be condemned to be executed, uh, because that in order to uh, enact justice. Uh, I, I say ditto to your question. <laughs> okay, I think that was good. Okay, well, let me move on then to some challenges that were raised by uh, Reverend Matt Slick when I called into his show asking him what he thinks about annihilationism. By the way, Slick is, in fact, his real last name, in case you're not familiar with him. But anyway, the first thing that he said when I called in was that annihilation is a form of works righteousness. Uh, I wasn't sure what he meant, but I went to his website, and, and it puts the argument this way. A person who has suffered an appropriate amount of time would then be delivered from that suffering because of his punishment. In other words, after the person has suffered enough, he has earned deliverance from the wrath of God. Annihilation, then, is being delivered from the suffering. How would you respond to this claim that annihilationism is a form of works righteousness? Uh, this guy's been drinking Kool-Aid or something. Uh, a person suffered, and time is delivered from the suffering because of his punishment. He's earned deliverance from the wrath of God. I, 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 there's nowhere in the Bible that uh, that that portrays the the final punishment of second death as being deliverance. That's he, he's thinking solely in terms of a conscious torment as being the only punishment from which one he thinks is then delivered to dies. That that's just got things all turned around backwards. The New Testament, as I said earlier, does not even talk about the conscious torment as being a specific element of the punishment. That's not something that is focused on. That's not the point. The point is the destruction that takes place. And so the destruction is the punishment. It's not deliverance from the punishment. Okay. Um, well, that sort of leads into this uh, this next question I have for you. It's, again, something that Matt Slick raised when I was talking to him on the air. Um, I pointed out to him that at least some annihilationists would make a distinction between eternal punishing and eternal punishment. That is to say that whereas traditionalists would say hell consists of ongoing punishing, uh, some annihilationists might instead say that it's a final and eternal punishment without requiring an ongoing experience. Now, Matt objected to that basically on two grounds. The first was that if annihilationists, uh, if as annihilationists say, a person ceases to exist after being punished, or as you just put it, the destruction, the destruction is the punishment, the end state of that person is no different from before he was born. Just as he didn't exist prior to being born, so too will he no longer exist after being uh, destroyed. This first of Matt's points, then, is is that if there's no difference between the non-existence of a person after annihilation and the non-existence of a person before his birth, how could it be called a punishment at all? That's, that seems to me a very strange argument as well. Uh, to, is he unaware of the fact, I wonder, that between the time the person is born, who might have not been born, and the time that he is destroyed, uh, who might not need to have been destroyed, is he unaware of the fact that during that interim between those two uh, end times of this person's existence, this person is uh, made aware of, the, of God's gift of Jesus Christ, that that person is offered eternal life, that this person is told that you do not need to perish, but you can have eternal life and live with God and his people and Jesus Christ forever and ever in glory. Uh, I mean, the, the, the punishment is not only whatever conscious torment there is in the process of the destructive process, the punishment is not only the uh, the final destruction that is irrevocable and irreversible and everlasting and entire, the punishment is also the fact that this person is missing out on all that they could have had if they were saved. 
and uh, to say that uh, there's no 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 di- no difference in not being born and then suffering this kind of deprivation is uh, is just a non sequitur. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I hadn't thought about the, the point that you just made, but but I'll add to it something that dawned on me, which is that even the most ardent materialist who believes that when he dies, he will, in a sense, be annihilated, although it'll just be naturally, even the most ardent such atheist still doesn't want to die. <laughs> and so and so it would seem to me that even if even if my uh, friend Matt Slick's point were um, had any merit to it, it would still seem to be uh, a genuine punishment to no longer exist, since we all want to exist. Well, uh, f- further, furthermore, he, he is doing what many traditionalists do in focusing totally on... Uh, conscious torment uh, as being the punishment. And in fact, so some of the traditions writers I dealt with, John Gerstner in particular, makes a statement repeatedly that uh, the only kind of punishment there is is conscious torment. And, and yet deprivation is, in, is enormous punishment. St. Augustine has another statement that is very wonderfully worded, I think. He says, and he, he did not agree with my views, I'll be clear about that, but he says a statement that if he had thought about it a little while longer, he should have agreed with my views. <laughs> he, he says, where a very serious crime is punished by death and the execution of the sentence takes only a minute, no laws consider that minute as the measure of the punishment, mm. but rather the fact that the criminal is forever removed from the community of the living. And so the, the one great part of the punishment of, of the lost is the deprivation of the kingdom of God, the loss of eternal life, the, the missing out on all the blessings of immortality. Yeah, and I, I like you pointing to the um, the capital punishment analogy because uh, it struck me as you were saying those words that um, we're moving away from uh, capital punishments that inflict suffering, like the uh, like uh, maybe hanging, the firing range, or the electric chair, and we're moving to drugs which impose very little suffering until death. And, and so, so if we're if we're willing to acknowledge that as being a, a just punishment in this life for years of say serial murder. Um, then why is it that we would question whether or not destruction is, is a just punishment for years of sin against God? Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Well, now, the second grounds, though, on which Matt objected in this phone call that I had, um, the objection to the idea of annihilation being punishment, is that after being annihilated, the person no longer exists, and thus there is no judgment, no punishment. There may have been a temporary judgment with consequences temporarily being experienced by the one being punished, but after that, there are no consequences because there is no one to experience those consequences. So how would you respond that, to the argument that if one ceases to exist, there is no sense in which the judgment or punishment or consequences could be said to be eternal, as the Bible seems to say? Well, the Bible also tells us specifically what is the, the, that which is eternal in, 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 in the punishment. In Second Thessalonians 1, Paul says that Jesus, when he comes, will punish the wicked with everlasting destruction. He punishes them with everlasting destruction. The, the, the destruction, which never ends, the destruction once accomplished is always there, and forever and ever, as long as they are destroyed, which will be forever, they are they are punished by destruction. And it goes back to what Augustine was saying a while ago: they're removed from the community of the living. They're missing out on all the blessing of the reward. There's there's no reason for us to assume that punishment requires torture or torment in a physical or mental sense 
to be punishment. Let me illustrate it like this. You're in the northwestern state, I believe. I'm in the state of Texas, but all over these United States, the state laws are pretty much the same in this regard. The criminal code system, and I've been an attorney for 20-something years, the criminal code system in every state involves a number of possible punishments for infractions of the rules. And these range from such things as pay a fine, to go to jail, to go to the penitentiary, and in some cases to have uh, to have a life in prison, and in some cases even capital punishment. All of those things are punishment. If somebody's if somebody's out here picking up trash on the side of the road because a judge ordered it, it's part of their penalty. And somebody says, "What are you doing out there?" And he says, "I'm I'm being punished for my crime." That he's telling the truth. That's punishment. He doesn't have to be being beat beat up to be punished. He doesn't have to be physically assaulted to be punished. It's punishment because a judge with authority imposed this as the sentence or the consequences for his wrongdoing under the law. And so when Jesus speaks of eternal punishment, he tells us there will be consequences that are somehow everlasting. There are consequences that have to do with the age to come in a qualitative sense. But he doesn't say in that passage what the punishment consists of. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1 exactly what it consists of. They will be punished with eternal or everlasting destruction. And so the, this whole, uh, your, your, your other friend's whole idea is assuming something that cannot be assumed, namely that the only thing that fits the word punishment is some kind of a tor- torturous uh, conduct. Or, or at the very least, some kind of ongoing experience. That, that a punishment could not be said to be everlasting if there's no one to experience the punishment. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, so it was at this point in the phone call that Matt brought up a couple of passages um, which use a Greek phrase called, uh, or translated, forever and ever. You mentioned this earlier in the um, in the interview, but Revelation 14.11 is one of them, and it says that those who worship the beast will be tormented with fire and brimstone, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And then Revelation 20.10 says that the beast and false prophet will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I think the argument goes like this, though. The, the Greek phrase, forever and ever, uh, is also used in places like 1 Timothy 1.17 and Revelation 5.13 to describe the eternal, or at least a seemingly eternal, ongoing honor and glory given to the Father and the Son. So, so wouldn't that suggest that the lake of fire and the, and the torment that goes on there is also eternal and ongoing? Well, that uh, could be a suggestion, I suppose, if one uh, thinks of it that way. Uh, that's not the only only way to take it, however, and it's not, I think, the best way to take it. Um, your, your, your question was a little lengthy. Would you please uh, rephrase well, it? Basically, if it, in what sense uh, are Revelation 14 and 20 talking about the, you know, the, smoke, the smoke of their torment being forever and ever if that same phrase forever and ever is elsewhere used to refer to something that's eternal and ongoing? Oh, okay, that's fine. Well, let, let me just say this first of all, that Revelation 14:11 <clears throat> doesn't say that their torment is, in, is happening forever and ever. It says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And here's where we need to let the Bible explain itself. This expression, this figure of the smoke ascending comes from Sodom's destruction in Genesis 19. And if we go back over to that passage, we see at the end of the chapter that the next morning after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, Abraham goes forth and looks on the, toward the plains where the cities had been in the past, and he sees only smoke ascending in the air. It's quiet. It's, it's, there's no sound. We might think of a mushroom-shaped cloud. 
There's no suffering going on down there when the smoke is rising. The rising smoke is a testimony to a completed destruction. It means the suffering in that sense is over with. It means there's nobody left. It means there's nothing now but smoke and ashes. Mm. And so Abraham sees this rising smoke, and he, I'm sure he must have been awestruck. It nearly makes me shiver and weep to just talk about it. Uh, the smoke rising in what had been a huge metropolis before with populations. Now there's nothing but smoke. And, uh, and so this is, the, this is the origin of that phrase, the smoke ascending. You find it in other places in the, in the New Testament as well. But then this, this adds another point to that. This speaks of smoke ascending forever. And this phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 34, where in the prophecy against the, the nation of Edom, God says that when he punishes Edom, he will come against them with a fire that cannot be put out, it cannot be quenched. It will therefore destroy them completely. And then he says the smoke, Edom's smoke will ascend forever. Because what he means there is that Edom, unlike some cities that God punished or some countries, will not be rebuilt. But Edom will be uh, be forever a desolation. And he goes on to describe that. And it will be a place where porcupines inhabited in the, in the critters and creatures and and there won't be any people there ever again so so you've got a double phrase here both of which are explained in the old testament first of all smoke rising is a picture in the old testament of a completed destruction a thorough destruction is over with and no more conscious suffering is even happening secondly it's in this case it's smoke ascending forever which means that that will be a perpetual state and they will never be rebuilt or repopulated so I'm just saying the text doesn't really say what he's suggesting when he read it in too big of a hurry without <laughs> having the benefit of thinking about it in these other, other terms of these other passages. Revelation 20.10 speaks of the beast and the false prophet being tormented day and night forever and ever. I, 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 all I can say here is this, this is the... If somebody asks me what's the one passage in the whole Bible that is, that is the toughest passage for your view, I would say Revelation 20:10, and yet I'm not I'm not wiped out by this one because Revelation 20:10, which speaks of the beast and false prophet tormented day and night forever and ever, this is a vision. Uh, this is a symbol. This is a, a apocalyptic language. This is in Revelation, which is a figurative book. And and it would be very bad uh, hermeneutics, very bad approach to Bible study and interpretation for us to take one or two passages in Revelation and construct a doctrine from them and say this outweighs and must be the filter through which dozens if not hundreds of other scriptures throughout the whole Bible must pass in order to, to stand up. It makes far more sense to say, honestly, this is a tough passage. If this were the only passage I had, I might have some real trouble with it. But we've got all these other passages that speak constantly and consistently of die, perish, and destroy. And, and, and I just have to say this one finally yields to those and whatever this is talking about, by the way, and this is the last thing I'm saying right here on this verse, that, that whatever it means, by the way, is talking about the beast and the false prophet and not human beings, which in my mind the beast stands for ungodly civil government. The false prophet stands for false religion that's in cahoots with it. And in this, in this vision that John sees in the sky, uh, this great uh, drama before there was a Cinemax or any of that, uh, <laughs> this, is, this, this is the way he describes what he saw. But the message of it, the message of it is to the people of John's day, first of all, you guys are have your head on the chopping block and you're told to offer incense to Caesar. 
or else in the, in the, the cult of the emperor worship is right there with the power of the Roman government. But be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. Uh, in the end, this beast and prophet are going to end up in the lake of fire. And I'll say one other thing. I said I was all, but I'm sneaking one other thing. <laughs> That's okay. The, the, the lake of fire, every other place it's mentioned, it is always annihilation when, when, when it's, when it's uh, talking about other things. Death is put in the lake of fire. That means death is no more. Hades is put in the lake of fire. That means Hades is no more. And when human beings are put in the lake of fire, every time the lake of fire is mentioned in Revelation with human beings, John always says, which is the second death? Because he wants us to know what it means, and it means the second death. Yeah, I I find that to be a very compelling uh, answer to the objection, and uh, you know, I would point out, incidentally, when when you, when you explained that this is a very figurative, symbolic book, um, the most uh, ardent premillennial dispensationalists um, would not would acknowledge that the woman clothed with the sun is not literally a woman who's wearing the the the, the sun on her back. So I think there's license to take some of this stuff uh, a little symbolically. Now let's move on from that conversation I had uh, and talk about some other objections that I found to your view. One argument that I've always found at least somewhat compelling, has to do with the nature of offenses against God. Um, I've heard some critics of the traditional view of hell rhetorically ask why God would inflict a, an infinite punishment uh, for finite crimes. But I've never found this objection persuasive because it seems to me that our offenses against God aren't finite since they're committed against an infinitely holy God, infinitely undeserving of being sinned against. How then can suffering, which is only temporary, be consummate with um, crimes which are infinite in seriousness? Does that make sense? Barely. <laughs> Let me put it this way. No, 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 no I'm, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> It makes sense. All right. Let me let, let me let me put this uh, rider back on the proper horse, though. Sure. It's, it's not it's not uh, conditionalists who made up this argument. These guys are responding to a long-standing traditionalist argument, which is arguing the other direction on the same principles. And it goes it come, goes comes down like this: in the time of Anselm of Canterbury, who is uh, I believe about 1100 A.D. something like that, uh, Anselm argued as follows. He said that he said that uh, God is an infinite being, therefore a crime against God or sin is an infinite offense. Man is finite, and except for Jesus Christ who is infinite. So other than Jesus Christ, who could be being an infinite person himself, uh, could pay an infinite penalty in a finite period of time. Other than him, all of uh, the rest of the human race, if they're punished properly for their infinite sin must suffer infinitely in time, meaning unending conscious torment. And that was the argument Anselm made. That became a very popular argument in the Western church, and it became Protestant argument later when the Catholic tradition passed into Protestantism. And it's one of the most popular arguments that's still made today by nearly every traditionist who writes an article or a book. Several interesting things about this. In the first place, the whole, the whole argument is based on feudalistic law. It comes out of a period of time when, when, when the, the crime that you commit in society has a punishment not based on the crime so much, but based on the person who did the crime and the person to whom it was done. If a serf, a low, low level working person injures another serf, there may be no punishment at all. If the serf injures his master, the lord of the manor, then there's serious consequences. 
if someone commits a major crime against a person of low standing, there may be no punishment at all. But if someone commits the most minor offense against the king, it may be off with his head. And so this whole, this whole notion of crimes being measured in their punishment on the basis of the persons involved was, was a feudalistic concept that Anselm borrowed and applied to God. Interestingly, when God himself gave a criminal law for people on earth in the Old Testament law of Moses, he, he not only did not include this kind of reasoning, but he specifically contradicted and forbade it. He said, in fact, it's to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, limb for limb, etc. In other words, you do not base justice on the persons involved. You base it on the crime. And if a man punches out someone's eye, his eye's punched out. It doesn't matter who, who he was. It doesn't matter who they were. Uh, God specifically says you're not to show partiality in your criminal justice system. So this this whole approach was not only non-biblical, it was anti-biblical. Mm. And, then, and, then, and then in the last place, it's not even logical. Because, and I've got a little surprise here for you. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not even logical because it, it seemed to me from way back, and I, and I argue this in the first book as well, that, uh, that it just doesn't follow even if the logic were applicable, which it isn't, even if we should follow it, which we shouldn't, it still would not follow that only eternal conscious torment could meet the, could meet the definition of infinite punishment. Because if a, infinite means without limits. Finite means something has an end or a limit. A chopping off place. Uh, infinite Punishment would mean punishment without limits. So if we take a human being in the age to come and throw him into hell, and this human being is there totally destroyed, every part of him, nothing left, soul, spirit, body, monistic, dualistic, whatever we want to talk about, he's totally gone without limitation. And if he's totally gone forever without limitation, nothing could be more infinite than that, it seems to me. But because I'm arguing the side that they disagree with, and because I'm not a good Calvinist, the good Calvinist traditionalists who argue the other side have not been persuaded by my wonderful argument. So I was delighted in preparing this third edition to come upon the fact in my research that in the 1600s, from 1636 to 1708, there lived a man, a Dutch man, not surprisingly, named Herman Witsius. W-I-T-S-I-U-S. And Witsius wrote a very lengthy piece on this whole subject in which he argued exactly what I just got through saying. He was a leading Reformed theologian of his day. He taught in three different Dutch universities, theology. And he and he took this argument head on and he said Anselm was wrong. Uh, infinite punishment would be satisfied if a person were destroyed in his whole entirety without limitation and destroyed forever without limitation of time. So, I think, thank you, Brother Witsius. And Sam, <laughs> step, step back. This is an argument that should not ever be made again. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't find it compelling either. I, I am curious, though. You, you mentioned, you know, Calvinists who are particularly, uh, who particularly bring up this kind of objection. Because I'm Reformed, I'm, I'm interested. Why, why is it that you find Calvinists in particular uh, have a, uh, object on these grounds? Oh, uh, I, 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 I did not say that 
based on some analysis that I've made that says they should be the ones who do. I'm simply making an empirical observation that as I, as I read the material, the ones who make this argument are usually Calvinists. No, that's good, that's good to know because, uh, it would be, I'd like to know if there was some sort of necessary connection between eternal conscious torment and Calvinism, and it doesn't seem to me as though there is. I, I think there's not, and in fact, I, in fact, I, I did, I did touch on it to this extent. I have a whole chapter on Calvin in his first theological book, which is called Psychopanachia. And the reason I dealt so much with Calvin uh, is because of this very thing we're talking about. I wanted to show that there's nothing inherent in Calvin's treatment of the subject, and there's nothing inherent in Calvinism per se that ought to require conscious unending torment. It, it should not follow. The reason it did follow, in my opinion, and this is empirical observation again, the reason it did follow, in my opinion, that most Calvinists tend to be tend to be uh, traditionists, is because most Calvinists who write books on these subjects tend to put a very high emphasis on what the church has always believed, as they see it. Mm-hmm. They tend to put a very great uh, weight of authority on the Westminster Confession, which says these things that they're teaching, and so forth. Whereas Arminians are freer usually to not be bound by the past thinking of others, et cetera, et cetera. And there are some notable examples of John R. Frankie, uh, now theologian in residence at First Presbyterian Church of Allentown, Pennsylvania, formerly professor at Biblical Seminary, uh, has a quote on the back of my book. And he invited me to say that he was one uh, Calvinist who, who believes in the condition of mortality. There you go. That makes me feel better. <laughs> now... Uh, there's a website that I frequent, uh, and that I went to to prepare for this episode, and it's, it's gotquestions.org. Uh, and it reminded me of Daniel 12.2, in which Daniel is told that in the resurrection, many will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Uh, now I'll admit that I find it curious that Daniel seems to be told that both the wicked and righteous will be raised, or so it seems to me anyway, and, and which you've already affirmed. But rather than going on to be destroyed, Daniel is told they will go on to everlasting shame, contempt, or grace, or, or, or disgrace. Doesn't this suggest that they will continue to be around forever so that they can experience shame, contempt, and disgrace? I don't think so. Uh... Interestingly, let's put Daniel in context here. The, the second half of the book of Daniel, the visions of the future, uh, not not just one time, but more than once, Daniel raises a question to the angel who's showing him these things or telling him about them and says, basically, what's this about? And he's told at least once, maybe several times, it's not for you to know right now. You seal up the seal up your message, and in the proper time, it'll be revealed, and others will understand, and so forth. You're you're playing a part in this, but you don't know exactly what your place is. Uh, we have reflections of that in First Peter one and in Ephesians three as well that say the same thing that the prophets in the old times did not always understand what they were talking about when they told about the things that have to do with the gospel. So Daniel is uh, is a book that has a lot of loose ends. Daniel has a lot of unanswered questions, and uh, and he's even left scratching his head himself sometimes. So with that said, let me call attention to the words you're talking about. They go into everlasting shame, contempt, or disgrace. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew words used there is also used, by the way, in 
Isaiah 6, 24 that I mentioned earlier, when it says the, the saved come out of the city, apparently, of the New Jerusalem, and to see the corpses of those whom the Lord has slain who are being eaten by maggots and consumed by a smoldering fire. And it, then it says, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And the word abhorrence there is the same word translated to contempt or disgrace in Daniel. So we've got two pictures here now, one from Isaiah and one from Daniel that speak of this disgrace or this contempt. We have we have Daniel, which pictures a resurrection of some to shame and disgrace and others to eternal life. And then we have the Isaiah passage that tells what happens to those who are raised to shame and disgrace. That is, their, their corpses are eaten by worms and consumed by fire and they're in everlasting contempt. Put that together and, and, and what do we have? It seems to me we have a picture in Daniel of what happens first. They're, they're raised. We have a picture in Isaiah of what happens sometime after that. They're eaten by worms and fire. They're consumed. They're totally destroyed. And then both places speak of the after effect or the result or what you might say is written on their tombstone. Shame, disgrace, disgust, abhorrence, repulsive, because uh, that will always be the way they're remembered. I understand. So it's the shame and contempt isn't experienced by the ones who are destroyed or, or raised to everlasting destruction. Uh, it's it's uh, something that is in the memory, so to speak, of, of the people that are alive to see their, their tombstones, metaphorically speaking. Yes, it's always attached to their memory. Their reputation is never rehabilitated. Okay. Now, uh, there's a theologian I respect, Wayne Grudem, uh, and in his systematic theology, he points to several passages he thinks supports the eternal conscious torment view. He writes, Jesus refers to hell as the unquenchable fire in Mark 9.43 and says that hell is a place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched in Mark 9.48. Um, now, the, that's obviously an allusion, I think, to the passages you've already mentioned, but doesn't, doesn't the fact that hell is a fire which cannot be quenched in which the worm never dies, doesn't this seem to suggest that hell is eternal ongoing torment? Well, it certainly has been argued that way and explained that way for many, many centuries. However, it doesn't really seem to me to teach that, and we don't need to come to that conclusion. The key to this uh, understanding is as simple as, as, as letting the Bible explain itself. What happens uh, throughout Scripture there, in God's judgment warnings, there will be statements about the fact that He's coming against uh, someone with fire, and He will say in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and all through the prophets to different nations and cities, and in the New Testament you've got it again in Mark nine here, and other places. Uh, God will say, "I'm coming with unquenchable fire. My fire cannot be quenched." Well, let's stop and think about that a second. What, what does it, what does it mean to be quenched? It means to be extinguished. We're told in a different context to take up the uh, shield of faith by which we can quench the fiery darts of the adversary. Uh, in, the, in the old old days, uh, the warriors would go out to fight and they would shoot flaming arrows at the other side. They would shoot uh, flaming torches at the, at the walls of the city or try to burn down their, burn up their ship in the water. Well, of course, when that uh, when that hits you and the fire hits you, you try to put the fire out so it cannot do its destructive work. And you try to quench the fire. But God warns when he comes against someone with fire and judgment, that fire cannot be quenched. They can't put it out. There's no relief from it. It's going to do what fire is intended to do, which is totally burn up whatever it is, is involved with. And so unquenchable fire in the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, if one just lets the Bible explain itself, does, does not ever mean uh, necessarily 
anything to do with conscious pain and torment going on any length of time, much less forever. Unquenchable fire means it's irresistible fire. It's fire that cannot be quenched. It's fire that will do what fire is intended to do. And that's why in, 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 in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, for example, John the Baptist says of Jesus, he will gather his wheat into his barns and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire because his fire is unquenchable and cannot be resisted. When he puts the chaff in the fire, it will burn it up completely till nothing is left. I understand. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I am still curious about this issue of the maggot not dying. If 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 if, if people are destroyed, uh, in what sense is there something that will forever be able to provide food for a maggot? Well, I think it's I think it's making too much of the of the phrase. Really, this this is a quotation. Jesus did not create this language. He's quoting from Isaiah sixty six twenty four, and in the Isaiah passage. The picture back there is is one as follows. It's a picture of, the, again, the city. And outside the city, what we might refer to as a city dump, open-air kind of dump, into which, and by the way, that was what the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, later named Gehenna, uh, a prototype for Gehenna. That's what it was at one point in Jewish history, at least. It was a place where dead soldiers' bodies were tossed where the animals' corpses were put, where trash was burned, and so forth. So uh, in Isaiah's picture, that's the picture we've got. It's not a big raging furnace. It's not a big, uh, huge flame shooting up sky high. It's smoldering fire. It's maggots. It's it's a fire that can burn alongside maggots eating a dead corpse at the same time. And it's a place of destruction. It's a place of repulsive, of turn your stomach, make you want to get out of there, hold your nose, shut your eyes can't stand this much longer. And that's where you get all these words like contempt and all that. Uh, the, the imagery is, the imagery in other words, uh, get the, get the picture, I think he's, Jesus would say to us. Get this picture in your mind. And when you see this picture of a, of a place where, where maggots can keep on eating because the fire is not huge. Because the fire is smoldering and it's devouring, it's consuming little by little. And the worms are eating and devouring little by little, little by little. And after a while, there's not going to be anything left. Who knows how long it'll take? We don't know. You know, but they're not going to die till it's over with. The fire will not go out till it's finished. And it's a picture of of irresistible, uh, consuming, destroying, devouring agents that leave nothing. Yeah, and and I might add that in that Isaiah 66 passage, the worm that does that doesn't die is eating something which is dead and unconscious. So, so it would seem to me that even if we are, to, to, you know, if there is a worm that's eating the dead that are destroyed in the um, in the final judgment, that doesn't nece- that doesn't necessitate that the ones being eaten are conscious of uh, conscious of it. That's that, correct. Yeah, okay. Well, now before I get to what I think is one of the most the biggest challenges to your view. I want to talk about two bad ones, <laughs> at least ones of which I think are bad. One of them you alluded to earlier in the interview, uh, Luke chapter 16 and the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. I want to state from the outset, I don't find this argument compelling at all. In fact, I think it's utterly irrelevant. But uh, and, and it's probably for some of the same reasons you're about to give, but I want you to give them. This, this place of torment in which the rich man finds himself in this parable, uh, the fire in which he is anguishing, why doesn't this present a real challenge to annihilationism? Well, there's several reasons why uh, we might think of several levels of looking at this. First of all, I will mention this, that I do have a a whole chapter in in the new edition of the book 
on the, the rich man and Lazarus. And I start the chapter out by saying basically this is a chapter of, this is a chapter of the New Testament which has nothing to do with our subject. But because so many people think it does, I've got a chapter in the book on it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but here, here's, here's a story on that. And this is going to be an exercise again in letting the Bible interpret itself and looking at context especially. Um, and by the way, there are traditionalist authors who totally disagree with me about what happens to the wicked, but who say emphatically that this story is not about uh, anything we're talking about here right now today, and it should not even be used in talking about the final hell. Uh, and if you look at my book, you get the sights on that. But let's back up to context. First of all, it's a parable. Uh, parables are generally intended to teach one lesson, maybe two, maybe three at the most. They're certainly not intended to be uh, taking every single detail and make some point out of it that's the point of the parable. That's not the way parables work. Some people say, well, it couldn't be a parable because it says there was a certain rich man. <laughs> and it even gives a name to the poor guy. Well, the interesting thing is in Luke 16, if you read the chapters right around this, and even the same chapter, you've got two or three other parables that start out by saying there was a certain whatever and says Jesus taught them this parable saying, so the parable can be a certain person still be a parable. But what's the parable teaching about? Look at the context. Jesus has been teaching the people about the evils of covetousness. The Pharisees who are covetous mock his teaching. The word mock literally means to thumb their nose at him. Jesus warns them and says, you better be careful because you are those who think that you, you, you better be careful because that which is highly regarded in the sight of men is despised in the eyes of God. In other words, men's opinion of you and God's opinion of you may be quite different. And then he, then he goes on to give them a warning that they're living in critical times because the law has been until now and the kingdom is being preached and this is a time since John that they need to be paying special attention to what God is saying. All right, those are the points of, of context. And into that situation, into those points, into that very need, Jesus speaks this parable. And look what he does. He tells a parable about a man who was covetous, uh, just as the Pharisees were. He's a man who apparently mocked what God had said because the Bible and the Old Testament, almost every page, had something about taking care of the poor. He's, he's a man who thinks that because men think he's uh, great in, in the eyes of God, he, he must therefore be great in the eyes of God. But he dies and finds out quickly that it's, it's the other way around. And God's view of him and Lazarus is quite different from the people's view who, who are surrounding him on earth. Mm. So every, every, every point, and then the final point, you're living in critical times. You, you recall how the parable ends, the story ends. The rich man says, send Father Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. Uh, so they don't come to this place. And the answer is they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, it's critical that they hear the word of God that they have. God's given them what they need. They don't need something they don't have. Listen to what you've got. So every, every point Jesus makes in the context fits this story. These are the points he's making. This, the the punchline has nothing to do with hell. The punchline is about listening to God's word while you have opportunity. So it's a parable. Right. Even if, even if it were not a parable, it's not on this subject. Yeah. But even, even if it were on this subject, it's not literal. Nobody believes that, uh, that a drop of water would be enough to do any good to somebody's tongue in hell torments. 
Uh, I've never met anybody who thought that. I, I don't think anybody really literally believes that that the righteous and the, and, the, and the lost will be looking at each other across the fence uh, throughout all eternity. And, and so finally, finally, we have to say, Chris, this is not this story. Even if it's not a parable, which it is, if it was if it was on this subject, which is not, if it was literal, which it isn't, even if all that were different. It still doesn't say anything about final hell because the, the scene in this story has his brother still alive on earth. It has the law and the prophets still the greatest word of God on earth. And it has, has, uh, some, has, uh, Hades still in existence. So at the very most we could say about it, it's a picture of, of some, of the state of this man at least during a period before Jesus dies and is raised again. Uh, at a time when Moses and the prophets are the last word from God, and it uh, has, has to do only with what we, what we might refer to as the intermediate state. And, and that's why a number of good theologians and biblical scholars who disagree with me on this big subject totally say, hey, guys, don't bring this up. You'll embarrass us because it's not even talking about this. Yeah, I agree, and that's why I was a little disappointed when I found out that Wayne Grudem included this argument in his chapter on hell. Uh, you know, the, 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 like, like you, like you said, the most, and even this I question, the most that you could draw from Lazarus and the rich man is the intermediate state. It has nothing to do with hell, so. Uh, but like I said, I, I question that even. Dr. Grudem is a good man, and, uh, I'm, I'm particularly, uh, appreciative of his book on prophecy, Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament today. I just toss that in as a footnote. Yeah, he's a great, great theologian, great scholar. I just, we all make mistakes, and I think this is one that he made. Uh, now, there's an even worse argument, though, that that I almost hesitate to bring up because I think it's so bad. Um, but I really don't want it to be able to be said by anybody listening that I didn't challenge you thoroughly enough. So, here goes. There was a website I stumbled upon when I was preparing for this interview that tries, that remarkably, <laughs> uh, shockingly tries to argue that 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that all men will be raised with immortal and perishable bodies because in verse 22 it says that for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive and then goes on to talk about them putting on immortality. Uh, the website also points out, by the way, that this is when Paul says death will be swallowed up in victory. So the question I have for you in, in responding to this horrible argument, is it, it does Paul in fact say that the body with which the wicked will rise is immortal and imperishable? And how can they die a second time if death is swallowed up in victory? Well, absolutely not. He does not say such a thing as that. And if that were the case, he could not say what he says that you just quoted. Uh, the person, the person who made that argument. Uh, surely is asleep or uh, taking some strong medicine or something and don't know what they're talking about because uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, all, all responsible evangelical and other scholars alike agree, is giving a picture of, this, of the final state of those who are redeemed. The words like uh, immortal, glory, glorious, and power, uh, indestructible, uh, incorruptible, these are words that fit the saved. And, uh, and, and 1 Corinthians 15 is not saying anything about the state of the body of the wicked. It is expressly does not, by inference, we can gather that they are not any of these things since it's all said of the saved and not of the lost. 
but the picture could not be clearer. And if he, if if if, if someone seriously wants to argue that the, that the lost have immortal bodies based on First Corinthians 15, he's also going to have to say they have eternal life and all the other blessings that are mentioned there as well. Right. Well, and and as to that phrase, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will be made alive, I would say, and I'm wondering if you think this is correct, that the point is that for as in Adam all who are in Adam die, so also in Christ all who are in Christ will be made alive. Does that sound right? I, I, I would agree with that statement, whether that is the fullness of the explanation of the text, I'm not sure. Sure, fair enough. Uh, but what about death swallowed up in victory? If, in what sense is death swallowed up in victory if there is the second death? Well, praise the Lord, death will be swallowed up in victory for those who are saved because their names are written in the book of life. And the book of life is the book of the registry of all the citizens who live in the city and those who have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So the final choices pictured in Revelation are those whose names are written in the book of life. And those who are cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. It's life or death. It could not be plainer. And in the end, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is no more. The one who had the power over death is destroyed. We who once were under fear of death are freed even now from the fear of death. And, and, and we will be raised in immortality with the resurrection bodies to live forever. <laughs> new heavens and new earth and it will be... No sin, no evil, no no blemish anywhere on God's perfect creation. God's justice will be vindicated. His name will be hallowed. And from one end of the universe to the other, there will be the sound of singing praises to the Lord. It's amazing. It's an, it's an amazing thought. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, the, the you know, one of the points here is that uh, after the second death, there will be no more death. I think that's in the sense in which it's swallowed up in victory. And, yeah, I, I am moved by what's moving you as well but i do want to move on to what some would argue is the most challenging text to your view uh or at least what seems at least it seems to be that because it's the one that seems to be most often pointed to and objecting to annihilation and in fact you chap you dedicate a whole chapter of your book to it in chapter four in matthew 25 46 jesus describes the resurrection using language similar to that of daniel that we looked at before he says these will go into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life now, as you point out in that chapter, since Augustine, many theologians have looked at that verse and insisted that the punishment must last as long as the life. But if that's not the case, why not? Well, we've already cited Augustine once on, on this point, I think, in a different connection. But let me start by, by reading his sentence again uh, on this subject. And, and it, interestingly, Augustine does not agree with me. He refers in his, he, he wrote a whole major book on this subject as well. It's book 21 of his book, The City of God, and I have a chapter on that in my book as well. But Augustine, in his book, argues for eternal conscious torment. He he, he refers in passing to uh, Origen, who was teaching uh, uh, universalism, and he refers to him as our party of the more piteous part. Uh, in other words, the ones that had what today was called a gen- kinder gentler theology, I suppose. But I'm just, I'm just saying Augustine does not agree with me on the subject in general, but he makes this statement, which I think is a wonderful response to your question, where a very serious crime is punished by death and the execution of the sentence takes only a minute. No laws consider the minute as the measure of the punishment, but rather the fact that the criminal is forever removed from the community of the living. So when we, when we talk about 
of eternal punishment, uh, that, that, that is a, a great part of the essence of the eternal punishment. The, the wicked are destroyed in the second death. They die, they perish, they're destroyed. Those are the three most common words in the whole New Testament for what happens to the, end, to the wicked in the end. And, and when they're gone, they're gone forever, and they're gone entirely, and they miss out on all the kingdom of God, and they miss out on eternal life, and they miss out on immortality. So uh, the punishment is certainly eternal punishment. They're, they're destroyed forever. It's eternal, eternal destruction, Second Thessalonians 1 calls it. Uh, again, the only person who... Who would, who would find it necessary to say that punishment, uh, is eternal only if it's eternal conscious torment would be the person who cannot conceive in his or her own mind of anything being punishment except physical or mental tor- tor- torture. I see, but you also go on to explain in that chapter that there's another sense to the word that's translated eternal, something having to yes. do with, can you explain that? Yes, yeah, sure. The, uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing at all that uh, eternal only means uh, only means uh, unending. I think it does have that meaning in many of these passages, but I think it also has a qualitative sense in many passages, and that is especially in Matthew, by the way. And, and that would be of the age to come. The, the, your, your, your listeners who have read Greek are, are, will remember, and some of the others will remember having come on the same teaching in other places, that the, that the word for age is ion in, in Greek, and the word for adjective eternal is ionios. And it means of the, pertaining to the age to come. I have a whole chapter in the early part of the book on this word. But uh, in, anything in the New Testament of the end times that is, has the word eternal attached to it, has that, has that connotation as well. It, it, both qualitative and quantitative. It pertains to the age to come. Eternal punishment means we know something about punishments now of different kinds. Uh, we've talked about some of them. But th- this will be a punishment that's particularly suited to the age to come, and we've never seen anything just like this before. Uh, we can talk about eternal judgment. Same thing. It's not only a judgment, the outcome of which lasts forever. But it's a judgment which pertains to the age to come, and there's no judgment that's ever yet occurred on earth that is fully exactly like this one. Or we could talk about eternal redemption. The process of redeeming is, is over with at that point. It doesn't mean eternally redeeming, but the redemption that resulted lasts forever, and yet that redemption uh, will be grander and, and, and more complex and beautiful and wonderful than any redemption that earth has ever seen. So the, the, the word eternal, Ionios, uh, it does have a qualitative sense, and it also has a quantitative sense. I believe both of those are true of punishment. Sometimes people say that eternal punishment must be as long as the eternal life. I say absolutely so. I agree wholeheartedly. Eternal life will be forever with God. Eternal punishment is the punishment of eternal destruction, and they have been cut off from God and destroyed completely, and they'll never come back. And so they are equally eternal in that sense and also in the sense of qualitatively. I understand. Now, but is this then how you would respond to challenges from passages like Matthew twenty-five forty-one and Jude verse seven, which refer to eternal fire? Um, are, are these passages that use this word translated eternal? Are they characterizing the quality of the fire rather than its duration, or is there a sense in which the fire is eternal? I think that uh, I think that it's probably both senses. And and and, and Jude, by the way. It tells us that Sodom gives us an example of eternal fire. So in this case, we know what Jesus means 
in Matthew 25, 41, when he speaks of eternal fire, because Jude, the brother of our Lord, tells us in his little epistle, Sodom is a picture of eternal fire. And what happened to Sodom? Well, the fire destroyed Sodom. How long were they destroyed? They're destroyed forever. They never come back in this world, in this age. And those who are destroyed in the age to come in the eternal punishment will never be seen again. They will never come back again. So the eternal fire is a fire that destroys eternally. Uh, you, you mentioned early on in our conversation today about uh, about the difference between eternal punishing and eternal punishment. Right. Uh, a, a, a number of these words I just spoke of have that same attribute in the New Testament. It speaks of eternal judgment, eternal redemption, eternal salvation. Uh, the, these all are end time kind of eschatological things, but but it's the same in each case. There's eternal judgment, but not eternal judging. There's eternal salvation, but not eternal saving. There's eternal punishment, but not eternal punishing. Unless someone think I'm just making up something there, I'll mention the fact that that's true. That's this is true in both English and Greek, and I cite the Greek grammars in in my book on this point. But in English and Greek, both there the form of words often tells us whether it's a result word or not. In English, words that end with M-E-N-T, like punishment, or T-I-O-N in salvation, those are little signals that this word, by its morphology or form, is, is perhaps telling us it's a result word that, that talks about the result of some action that's been taken. Same is true in Greek with the with suffixes that fit these words in Greek. Uh, S-I-S is, is one of the suffixes, for example, and M-I-A and so on in Greek. And, and the Greek grammars point this out. Um, I, I don't want to be too obtuse here going into that detail, but I think it's important. <laughs> it's important to say that this is not just something that's made up. This is really the way the languages operate. And when he, when he speaks of eternal punishment, he means that what, whatever this punishment consists of, whatever this punishing involves, and we've already said it could be anything that God imposes, and it would be punishment if God imposes it for wrongdoing. But whatever it is, when it's when it's done, it's done, and its result will last forever, and it will never be undone, and it's it's part of the age to come. Okay, yeah, that's a good response, and you know those were all the arguments. Well, at least the vast majority of the arguments I was able to find in favor of the traditional view of hell. Um, I think, personally, I don't know if my listeners will agree, I think you've given us a lot to chew on, uh, and a lot of what you said I find really compelling. So, so let's begin to wrap up, and as you might recall from our previous conversation, I like to end my interviews by giving my guests an opportunity to speak one last time to my listeners. Is there a sort of parting message you'd like to leave them with this time around? What is it maybe you most hope they would take away? I, 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 fr- I frequently like to end the teaching bus. This kind of a statement that if you, if you don't remember anything else that I've said today, <clears throat> please remember only two passages of scripture which you already know by heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the other one is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's life or death. It's life or death. And when we're through talking about it and when we're through reading books about it, just remember that. And if you go back and look through the whole New Testament, 
you'll find the most common three words describing the end of the wicked are die, perish, and destroy. It's life or death. Those names written in the book of life in the holy city and those people who are put in the lake of fire, which is the second death. We don't need to make it more complicated than that. The only reason it became more complicated than that was because of this Greek doctrine of the immortality of the soul, which corrupted Christian teaching in many areas. We know better than that now. And it's time we come back and let the Bible say just what it says and mean what it sounds like. Okay. Well, besides just your book, are there any other books or resources you would recommend for listeners who want to do further research into this debate? I'll mention a, a more manageable approach maybe than the fire that consumes. Uh, people who want a thorough study, I urge them to, to get the fire that consumes. And I, I would also want to say be sure that you get the third edition because it's the one we've been talking about all this time. And, and the best place to get it is through the publisher, Wipf and Stock, W-I-P-F and S-T-O-C-K dot com uh, is their website. And uh, uh but this is a technical book. It's a heavy book to read. Uh, if someone wants a, something a little more accessible and with even both sides in the same book, I suggest they get two views of hell from InterVarsity Press. I wrote half of this book, and the other half is written by my friend Robert Peterson, who is a professor of theology at Covenant Seminary. Uh, Robert defends traditionalism. I defend conditional immortality, and we each respond to the other. So that's a good introduction with both sides and both sides' responses. Okay. I'll include links to both books in, in my show notes. And, you know, I asked you this last time, but just in case anybody listening today didn't listen to our last discussion, where is it that they can go to find your ministry resources, and, and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, my website is edwardfudge.com, and uh, they can get in touch with me by writing edward at edwardfudge.com. Great. Thanks, you, thanks so much, Edward. I really appreciated your time today. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be with you. Well, there you have it, the second half of my interview with Edward Fudge on Annihilationism. I think that he answered the objections that I raised pretty well, uh, and I'm left with very little reason, I think, aside from tradition, to hold to the traditional view of hell. Um, I find his case pretty compelling, and, and what I find more compelling is just how weak it seems to me that the objections typically leveled against it really are. Um, but that's just where I stand. That's, that's the boat I'm in, uh, on the fence, kind of like I am with physicalism. Um, although, as I mentioned, Glenn Peoples will be coming back on in the near future, hopefully, to uh, follow up on physicalism uh, and Joel Green's appearance, where I wasn't entirely satisfied by Joel's answer to a question that I had asked him. Anyway, uh, I don't have any guests lined up uh, for a future episode, although I have reached out to a couple of people. Um, I'm not sure what the next episode will be, but sometime in the future, do stay, do stay tuned for that debate uh, on Trinitarianism. Uh, and uh, whatever the next episode turns out to be, whatever topic I end up discussing, I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the Apologetics Podcast. Mm-hmm.